0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen.
1: Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And uh, let's hope it is a good day. Uh, Absolutely. Yes, we've had some nice rains uh, during the week. We have. Um, So I'm a little more relaxed about things, although I have to say the ground is still dry underneath. It is. It definitely is. Unfortunately, I had to dig a quite large hole yesterday because we had to have our poor old cat put down this week. Uh, And once I got down below about an inch and a half, Yes. Ground's dry still under there, which is very worrying. Uh, So we obviously need more rain and lots of it. Um, But, yes, my tanks are full, my ponds are filling up. um, um, Everything's a little bit more cheery in that respect, I think. So, uh, yes, and they're talking about some rain later in the week, so who knows.
0: Uh, Yes, I think in a couple of days' time it's going to get quite... Wet. Again. Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> yes,
1: you know. Uh, it has its downside, of course, because it does, when it's really wet, it does stop you from getting out and doing stuff. But anyhow, uh, I'd rather the garden was giving a good drink than me worrying about whether I'm out there doing a bit of titivating or weeding.
0: Yep, yeah. yep, exactly. So, yeah.
1: That'll always still be there.
0: Yep, for sure. (laughs) We also have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Hi, Penny. Morning, Pam.
2: Morning, listeners. Lovely to be here. I've um, been domiciled in Ballarat for the last couple of days, and I'm going back there today. But um, I spent yesterday morning in the Ballarat Botanic Gardens I got there at about 8.30 um, for my birthday a few months ago. I was given a new tri- uh, tripod for my cat oh, yeah, and mm. it's a really nifty one. So I thought I'd just go and I had a couple of hours to spare and I thought i will just go and wander around and take photos. And yeah. yeah, it's a got nice Got some here. really good shots of the amazing redwoods up yeah. in the garden. Yeah, they are great trees. Aren't and they? I checked out the Avenue of um, Prime Minister's.
1: How, how are we going with that? Have they caught up yet? No, <laughs> it's not. Yeah, because there was quite a turnover there for I a while.
2: Tony Abbott's there, but um, Malcolm isn't, so, uh. yeah, and, and, and certainly not um, ScoMo. But, no, um, well, but they the, might wait till he's gone
1: before they get the statue done, possibly. The thing that
2: I thought was really lovely was that in front of Bob Hawke's statue uh, were these old bunches of flowers, Oh, that's sweet. As a result of him oh, dying, that's nice. and, and a bottle of beer. <laughs>
3: <laughs> How appropriate! Yeah, that's
2: rather rather so good. I, so mm. I took a photo of that too. So. <laughs> But, yeah, it was just, they're beautiful gardens. They're, you know, they're really nice in lots of ways. They're, they do a lot of mass planting, mm. which you don't see a lot of these days. No. But because of the cooler climate, I think they can keep it alive for longer. So they've just put in all this new planting of, yeah. of annuals. Yeah. But they've had to obviously net around the edges. Yeah. Uh, so I suspect maybe rabbits, do you Might think? Might
1: be rabbits, because, you know, I mean, it's close to the lake and there's yeah. probably habitat fairly close around there that uh, could the rabbits could be in there. So, so. They're,
2: they're not protected from birds, so it's not birds getting able yeah. to scratch it out, but um, so I thought probably rabbits, so I'm hoping that they will all disappear relatively soon, because it does detract a little bit from the display. Uh, yes, um, I can well imagine it would. But they also have a sensory bed up mm-hmm. there, which, um, even in winter there's some really nice things in flowers, some really yeah. nice lavenders and things, and um, they're all labelled. So it's ah. for someone like me who is involved in the herbal side of things, it was nice to see some effort being put into into a, a big sensory bed area and it's actually got a fountain in the middle. So, mm. so yeah, that's, that's really good. nice. Mm. Um, and a question you might be able to answer because I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Um, and I know it, it is about... I'm pretty sure that they were um, alocastrinas. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have a deciduous alocastrina?
1: Not as far as I'm aware.
2: No, I didn't think so either. Because there's this beautiful path that goes out into the lake, and mm-hmm. the lake's really full at the moment. Oh, fantastic! And these fabulous alocastrina trees, which the roots all—they're actually in the in the water, mm-hmm. and but the roots at the side are all coming out of the ground, and they form mm-hmm. these incredible mounded, sculptural. And they're pink and brown and mm. incredible colours. But it looks to me as if, and I'm pretty sure they're casuarinas, mm. but they've lost all their leaves. So mm. uh, either they're dying or... Which is possible, Or I they're suppose. not casuarinas. Yeah, or... <laughs> or or, um, or there, there is a deciduous one. Yeah, well, I'm pretty um, positive there's not a deciduous yeah, one, so, there so there I, I think other. I'd
1: have to opt for one of the other possibilities, yeah, yeah, I think. But maybe, that we,
2: maybe we have a listener who can tell us, particularly yeah. if there's someone in Ballarat who knows the trees well. Because um, they're beautiful, they're mm. remarkable. Um, mm. the, particularly down at down at ground level, where the where the roots yeah. are. Yeah. just looked incredible. So I took photos of those as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <good.
1: laughs>
2: You've been busy, but I had well, I had fun. It was good. I haven't That's had right. a spare couple of hours just to do something a bit contemplative for a yep. long time. So it was it was good.
0: Okay, excellent. We've also got to say a very good morning to David Sparks. Morning, David.
4: Morning, Pam, and morning listeners. Um, I'm from Westgate Biodiversity, Billy Nursery and Landcare and my job is managing a local community nursery that specialises in local native plants and the on-ground work of Westgate Park where that Pink Lake is.
0: Okay, so formerly uh, you were known as Skink.
4: Yes, so we were formerly St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Co-op and Friends of Westgate Park Mm -hmm. and about a year ago we merged together to form a bigger group that can help advocate for urban biodiversity, and especially local native plants around Melbourne. Great.
0: So um, basically, are you open to the the general public, the nursery? So
4: um, our nursery is on Williamstown Road in Port Melbourne, and we run workshops. So we've got three workshops coming up in the next month, Um, and we're open Friday and Saturday, and stock around 200 species of plants local to Melbourne. so yeah, so it's really good to come down and see the massive diversity of plants that we actually have in Melbourne and see what you can have in your own garden.
0: So you're actually covering the whole of the Greater Melbourne, are you? Uh,
4: we at St Kilda Indigenous Nursery historically looked after the sandbelt plants, but yes. now we're looking into Western Plains and also the other type of native plants as well. So okay, we, we stock around 200 species of plants.
0: Right, excellent. And so are you propagating there?
4: Yes, yeah, so um, we have a volunteer program where we have about, we, over our whole organisation, we have about 1,000 hours of volunteer power uh, a month and we propagate all our, all our own plants. We go out and collect all our own seeds um, and anyone that turns up to volunteer learns about the whole process of propagating native plants. Brilliant.
0: So roughly how many volunteers would you have?
4: Um, across the organisation we probably have about 20 a, a week that turn up mm. um, and they put in an amazing effort of propagating over 100,000 plants Wow. Um, and doing on-ground works at Westgate Park. Um, I don't know if anyone went and saw the Pink Lake I, I saw it from a
2: distance, but I didn't have time to stop. Yeah, that. so um,
4: <laughs> when anyone goes over the bridge, and I guess in um, peak hour when you're sort of looking over because of the traffic jams, all that green space has been do- planted up by volunteers and looked mm-hmm. after. It
2: looks extraordinary. It's yeah. just beautiful.
4: And the um, so Westgate Park actually has over 150 species of birds that's wow. been able to attract.
0: Wow, okay. that's impressive. That is, a, isn't mm. it? Amazing. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Wonderful. Okay, Um Stephen, let's start straight away on a couple of
1: plants. Yes, because I've got a few this morning. You and have a few? Uh, Remind people, too, that they're all up on the Facebook page. So if people want to actually see the plants we're talking about, uh, I sent my pictures away to Liz yesterday, and she got back to me to say thank you. So I'm assuming that see if there. you go on to the 3CR Gardening Show Facebook page, you'll be able to see images of the plants I brought along. And this is one I haven't bought in for years, and I can remember having... Uh, big discussions about this plant with Ian nickels. No, that's going back quite that a is. long time ago. <laughs> um, and this is one of the tree dahlias, but not the common tree dahlia that people grow, Dahlia imperialis, but one of the other species of tree dahlias, and this is uh, Dahlia excelsa. And it has a more open, flat, daisy-shaped flower than the common tree dahlias. Um, it's a slightly deeper shade of mauve. And I can remember having this, arg- well, not argument, but a long-term discussion with Ian because... Ian always said that imperialis flowered before this one, and I always said that this one always flowered before imperialis. And it dawned on me not all that terribly long ago, actually, that I could have actually won this argument by pointing out to Ian that it is cold weather that stimulates these plants Mm. into flower, and we get colder than uh, he did. So it actually brought my tree data into flower earlier because it is stimulated by the cool weather. So I find this one particularly useful because Imperialis often just comes into bloom when the frost knocks it down. But Excelsa, most years I get a good crop of flowers on it. Um, Its foliage is a bit finer and smaller. The plant itself will still get to four metres or more, Um, although I find it tends to be more stems, so it's a, a bigger, thicker Sort of plant, and like any of the this sort of group of plants, it does need to be cut down after flowering. So dahlia excelsa, and I think it's really handsome. And I've just recently been put onto a promise list from somebody in Adelaide for dahlia campanulata, which is another one of the tree dahlia species. And I didn't even know it was in Australia. Um, And this guy has promised me some canes. So hopefully, in due course, I'll have that one as well because I've I've seen it pop up on social media sites from America and other places, and thought, wow, I'd really like campanulata. Of that looks really good, uh, but just assumed that I'd probably never see it. Uh, so hopefully this year I'll get some canes of that as well. So yeah, so there's more to tree dahlias than the old-fashioned classic Movi imperialis. So mm. Yeah, so that's Excelsa. So
2: Excelsa grows from um, stem cuttings? Oh no, yeah, yeah.
1: all the tree dahlias yeah. you can propagate from stem cuttings uh, and they can be done either as canes that you plant after you cut your tree dahlia down, um, instead of just throwing away all that material yep. you can propagate some new ones uh, and I have grown them from softwood cuttings in the summer too and they strike almost overnight um, okay. so yeah, so there's no particular issues in propagating them I find them a difficult thing to grow commercially because you pot up your canes into an 8 inch pot and then suddenly they're 3 metres tall yes. and rooted down into the ground underneath yes. the pot right. uh, and so then you've got to hoik them out to, give the, to sell them to people and often have to chop the top off so that they mm-hmm. can get them in the car and take them home So they're not commercially a particularly useful plant, but they are a great thing in the garden. And I do love things like that that have an enormous amount of biomass that erupts, you know, so you've got nothing there when you prune it down. And then when the spring hits, these things sort of just skyrocket you can almost stand there and watch them grow uh, and I think they're really exciting and because of their verticality too they're good as temporary screens and uh, uh, fence hiding things and you know there's lots of places you can use something like a tree dahlia and I just think that mm. they're probably not as mm. often planted as they mm. should be. Mm. Mm. So there you go dahlia excelsa and I have to mention it is winter sweet time again and my winter sweet is a mass of little lemony bells at the moment uh, and scenting my whole garden which is just fantastic uh, and Pam, you brought in yours this morning, so... Yes, because I wanted to do
0: a comparison because yeah. I've spoken to you before how disappointed I've been yeah. with, with, yeah. with yeah, this... Yeah, yours is food. awful. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not good
2: enough, Steve. I, <laughs> I look, I disagree. I actually think Pam's, is a really pretty and yeah. it's a slightly paler colour and yeah, it's, it's got a... It's almost parchment-y, parchmenty. It's um, got a droopier flower, yeah. so it's, it's different, it's almost as if it's yeah. a different And yet it is ex- exactly
1: the same species well, uh, But it could
2: be a different cultivar? Well,
1: a lot of them are raised from seed, so I just think okay. that there's a whole pile of genetic variation, variation, variation in it, yeah. uh, and that's always the, the sticking point, I think, with planting winter sweet, because most growers are raising it from seed, because it's not as easy to strike from cuttings as some things yep. and so there will always be genetic variation, and the plant will always take quite a long time to get big enough to start flowering, because as a seedling, it takes quite a while to get through that juvenile phase Mm. and you do have to be patient if you buy one Um, they can take quite some years before they settle down and start flowering but I've I've got a sense that it's really worth it (laughs) because mine is now probably four meters tall and four meters wide it is a humongously big bush Um, and I just keep pruning lower branches off it so I can plant things under Mm -hmm. it so that I'm not losing that potential space Um, and it started, the first flowers opened, I suppose, about two weeks ago. And I'll have flowers on it now for the next month and a half, probably, maybe longer. Um, and every time I walk down my veranda, uh, the perfume of it just hits you in the face as you're going down so the veranda. So,
2: Stephen, what you're saying is people have to buy plants from you because you know that yours is a really <laughs> good scented plant and you grow them from cuttings. No, I don't no, grow them from cuttings. cuttings. <laughs> that's, that's the <laughs> that's big issue. That's in the fact, problem.
1: In fact, I'm thinking this year... To have a bit of a crack at it, okay, and see if I can't find a technique to grow them from cuttings reasonably well, because it would be nice to be able to offer a particularly good scented clone, yeah. which mine is. Um, and also, I have the sense that if I raise it from cuttings, you won't have quite the same length of period of wait before yeah. you get flowers on them. Mm. So I think it'd be worth having a crack at. But I've I've always put it off and just bought them in as young stock from one of the other growers who does them from seed. Um, But, yeah, mine is a nice one, and it would seem to be a logical thing to, as the next step is to propagate it. It does mean... (laughs) It it would be. be.
0: No, seriously. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah, I think it would be. So I will have a play with it this year. I'm thinking probably softwood cuttings under mist in in mid-spring is probably the most logical thing to have a crack at. Um, But it might be one of those things that actually... I might have to play with over a period of time mm. to work out the best time because I don't know anybody else who propagates it from um, vegetative means. funny, yeah. so well,
2: isn't it? Because it has the look of something that would grow easily oh, from cuttings. You'd think
1: it would be like a hydrangea yeah. or a phacelia yeah. or something and whack yeah. the cuttings in the ground yeah. and off it yeah. go. But it just doesn't seem to work that way. Mm. So anyhow, I'll do some experimenting this year and if I manage to get some struck, well then I'll be able to offer people a plant that I know to be reliable. Um, I still think it's worthwhile if you've got space in the garden somewhere to plant one in the back corner and just whack it in and see what happens. Yep. I think most of the time you'll get a respectable plant, but there there is that risk of getting one that's really not all that crash hot from seed, mm. unfortunately. But uh, for anybody who wants the botanical, it's Kimonanthus um, praecox, uh, praecox meaning early, which is quite an appropriate name for it. Fair enough. Um, and it's a hardy, tough old thing. I mean, it's drought tolerant, it's heat tolerant, it's cold tolerant. Mm. I've put it mm. in,
2: in one of the most difficult parts of my garden, yeah. and it's still it hasn't flowered yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I yeah. always say that Two, it's possible it could sit years. there. Yeah, well, it could sit yeah. there for six or seven. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. It's mine placed. took right. easily that Yeah, mine. yeah, and I have had people pull them out at about five or six and, <laughs> uh, and, and come in and say, oh, that bloody thing, it never flowered. And I said, well, actually, if you'd waited another year or so, it might have been all right. I don't know why people don't ask before they do those sorts of mm. things. Yes, that in that would their be garden. logical. Because I regularly get people come in, they, they've got a branch of something, and they say, what was this? And you think, well, what was that about? Why didn't you bring it in before you pulled it out just in case? Yeah. Because you don't know. There's some often some very cherishable plants that get destroyed because people just don't realise what they've taken on, particularly Mm. people who buy an existing house house, uh, with a a garden around it. People Mm. are often very impatient to stamp their own personality on the garden and they pull things out without checking. Yeah, you
2: should always wait for 12 months. Yes,
1: exactly, 12 months. you have got got to to go through every season. Yeah, Yeah. I can't agree more. I mean, there's often bulbs and things that will come up that you don't know are there. And and certainly something like a winter sweet is not going to be something that's going to knock your socks off until it flowers. Mm. So if you've got something like that in the garden, if you haven't waited to see it bloom, then you could be destroying something really fantastic. Exactly. Yeah, so I think it's really important to... uh, um, to take your time when you're gardening. And, uh, and look, even if you do buy a seedling one and you have to wait several years to flower it, I always think that plants like that that you've had to wait for are all the more exciting when they do flower because of the wait you've had to go through to get there. Um, I mean, instant gratification in gardening is not as easy to do, but the wait for something special, I think, you know, when it actually happens is really exciting. So... Mm. I would always opt to plant something that takes a while just so that yeah. I can watch it. In mm. fact, my plan is if I ever make it to 80, I'm going to plant a magnolia camberlite, which can take 10 to 15 years to flower, so it'll give me something to live for. <laughs> <laughs> that's the plan. Well, <laughs> it's,
2: the, it's the lovely story around ginkgos that mm. are called the grandfather tree because yeah. grandfathers plant them for their grandchildren yeah. because they won't reach full science until until their grandchildren are yeah. adults. Oh, and,
1: I think that's a nice you know, thing. Which, yes.
0: is, which I think is fantastic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. So, alright, so the winter sweet and the day we've dealt with. Excellent. Um,
0: while, while we've been talking propagating, mm. um, David, if I can get back to you. Yeah. Um, some natives are notoriously difficult to propagate. Yeah. Um, how have you found generally trying to, um, to increase your stock and propagate for yeah, the nursery?
4: Um, good question. So there's a few things that we do that increase propagation and seed, um, germination rates. One is we, um, use smoke water. So it's where, the, um, um, there was a discovery that came around only about 20, 25 years ago where they realized that fire has two aspects to it that help seeds germinate. That's the heat, which is from the flame and also from the smoke. Um, the smoke one they didn't find out about because it's not so easy to See the effects of smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing we do is the smoke water, which is um, we buy commercially or you can make your own if you've got a distillery because mm. um, you need to bubble up the smoke through water. Um, the second is using heat. So we use um, a, a kettle. A kettle. Um, just off the boil to pour over, um, those, the seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, those, the, the heat ones, especially for the phobases, the native phobases and the native acacias all need heat treatment. Um, but the smoke is a, it's an interesting one because it works the same way because the smoke has over 300 compounds in the smoke that help break down the seed coat. So, um, so we use that for everything that we propagate and we, it bumps up our germination from, 80, 90 percent up to about 100 for a mm. lot of our species. Does it
1: stimulate quicker and more even germination as well? Do you think? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um,
4: yeah, so it's quite interesting. We've done a few little trials here and there to see the difference, um, and it, they you do get that better flush when you mm. use smoke water. Um, with cuttings, we found that uh, autumn and spring are the best time to do a lot of our cuttings. Mm-hmm. Um, winter's too cold, summer's too hot. Um, but sp- we do mainly soft Um, softwood cuttings Mm. um, and just use a generic um, auxin Mm. gel. Um, There's some other interesting things around. So some of our seeds have over a year dormancy. So some of our grasses we have to keep a year to two years. And the older they get, the better germination we get. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, so um, so, something like the coastal speargrass, um, two to three years seems to give us the best germination. Any earlier, we don't get such a good germination. So you have to
1: think well ahead. We <laughs> do, so yeah. Yes, so, we need a crop of those. Oops, it's three years off. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
4: So one year we did actually forget to collect seed and mm. we didn't have them for about two years. So, nice. so yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing and there's a lot of little tips and techniques that we mm. sort of employ to mm. um, get things propagating. Mm. Um, I just wanted to bring back about waiting for your garden to grow. Mm. Um, we always have this discussion with our customers about Tube stock versus six-inch pots. Yeah. Um, we are predominantly a tube stock, so tube stock's a forestry tube, um, quite small plant, but we find that they grow and adapt better to people's gardens than if they try and buy the bigger stock of our native plants. Um, so that whole idea of waiting for your garden to grow, and it's really nice just to see things grow yeah. and flourish. So I always
1: say to people that there's nothing that's that much of a hurry in gardening. I mm. mean, yeah. you know i mean it is nice to get shade trees i have to say and you certainly need to get your trees in at a reasonably early stage when you're gardening if you're going to create the shade you want and and get sort of a sense of s- sort of establishment of a garden but most other things you can wait for um it doesn't and it doesn't take long really when you look back it seems to have mm-hmm. taken no time it's only looking forward that things seem to take forever Um, and as I say to people look if you've got a real issue like perhaps your kitchen window and your neighbour's bathroom window overlook each other well all you have to do is walk backwards and forwards naked a few times they'll stop looking you know, So don't be in too much of a hurry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, the other thing is that there's such diversity amongst plants that mm-hmm. if you want something quickly, you can put some annuals in. Yeah, you can get and you something that will do... And yeah. you can enjoy that colour while the other things are ticking yeah. away and growing. And, you exactly. Know, so,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where the tree dahlia shows yes. itself. I mean, yeah. you plonk one of those in and you get almost instant results. Yep. I mean, if you put a young one in, you've got a full-grown one by next season. Yes. Um, so there are plants out there that can give you that sort of almost instant kick, but it's often the really long-term plants that take a long time to establish that in fact give you the the most benefit in a garden, because those plants tend to be more long-lived often, um, uh, and they can grow to grander sizes, uh, and... um, Yeah, and we're doing something for the future. Mm. Although uh, an example of something really weird I saw only recently, I was walking down the side of the um, art centre uh, off St Kilda Road there, and they're just doing all that new lineal park thing that they're creating down around the ABC building and stuff. And they've planted a whole pile of Illawarra flame trees mm-hmm. down there, which will be fantastic in mm. years to come, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, when they start to flower. But they pulled out about six big currajongs to put, oh, the, no. to put the Illawarra flame trees in. And I'm thinking in the same genus, they had established currajongs growing there that were flowering mm-hmm. and looking quite handsome. Um, and they pulled them all out to put in the Illawarra flame trees. Yes, And I thought, I mean, the flame trees will look stunning in in decades to come. Uh, Once they start flowering, Mm. it's going to be quite spectacular down there, I'm sure. But currajongs are beautiful trees. I think currajongs are a lovely tree. Couldn't
0: they have relocated the currajongs? They just went
1: went in and whipped Lost them out, oh. just destroyed them completely. That's which I ridiculous. Think it, it is. It's sad, really. And, you know, mm. I know when you've got a plan and you want to you know, have something some way, you sometimes have to break an egg to make an omelette. But when you've got well-established trees like that that were in the place where the new ones have been put so they could have worked around them, mm. Mm. why not leave exactly. them in place? I mean, mm. it's going to take 30, 40 years for these flame trees to take the place that the Currajongs had That's already right. done. Um, really
4: weird. I don't mm, get it. Yep. But anyhow.
0: Oh, well. David, do you get the support from any of the local
4: councils? Or? Yeah, so we're really lucky that we work quite closely with the City of Port Phillip. Um, they buy around 60,000 tube stocks a year to put in their local reserves. Great. Um, and we also work with City of Melbourne and Hobson Bay sometimes come around okay um, so we get quite a bit of support from the local councils mm. um, we also get quite a lot of support from corporate groups that come through and help us with some of the work we need to do um, but we do get quite a lot of customers coming as well and we get a lot of support from the local community
0: fantastic yeah excellent so, yep. um,
4: yeah so it's really good because I, I was just thinking about something I read before about um, plant extinctions. Mm. I don't know if anyone saw that article, yeah. where it's um, yeah. 500 times faster than it should would be naturally. Mm. Yep. And one of the recommendations was teaching your kids about local native plants. Yeah. So getting people to recognize what they're actually seeing is mm. really important, and especially at a local scale. Mm. And our little community plant nurseries like us and Vink and Box Hill all have that in our sort of Purpose to try and get people to think about what's local and how diverse what we've got is mm. local because we have 200 species we we propagate and they range from the, the tiny little orchids that come up and go down to the big trees like the mm. red river gum so mm. yeah so mm. so I just say that one as well.
0: Do you ever get the opportunity to go out into some of the local schools and talk to them? Yes, yeah, so, um,
4: yeah, so we get Albert Park actually come to us, okay. um, primary school and we teach them about, this year we taught them about eucalyptus um, propagation because mm-hmm. they did a eucalyptus um, subject so um, yeah, we get in and we um, try and get them in, especially now that we've got Westgate Park in our group as well um, that's an amazing resource. Like there's, there's actually over 300 species of native plants there, all ranging from fully mature plants to just being planted. So, it's really yeah, great resource.
0: Excellent. Oh, I, that's brilliant.
2: Can I ask you a question? As well, we've yeah. been having a bit of a discussion on Facebook. I, I write for Organic Gardener magazine, mm-hmm. and um, about about lawns. And yeah. uh, there was an article that was that we put up about. Um, Not not mowing your lawns, but it was in the UK. So it was about meadows and attracting pollinators and all that sort of thing. And I just wondered what species you would say are the Australian equivalent. If you wanted to do something like replace your lawn with Australian native plants so that you've got an Australian native meadow... Mm What sort of plants would you be looking at and, and do they exist in, in most areas?
4: Yes, so um, the amazing thing around, especially around Melbourne, um, we have a, a massive range of lilies that will fill that um, that role of that meadow. So we've got things like chocolate lilies, vanilla lilies um, that give you that amazing flowering and they die down over summer and come back in winter and mm-hmm. flower in spring. But a lot of the grass substitutes, like weeping grass is a really good one, Microlinus tapoides. How um, tall does that grow? Um, that's uh, carpet grass. Okay. So it can, it's been used as a lawn substitute around Australia now for probably about 15, 20 years okay, as a, a native um, substitute. But then you've also got the tussock grasses, which get up to um, 50 centimetres to some up to a metre. Mm-hmm. So there's a range of grasses and the lilies, and also daisies. Um, though you can all mix in together and have a meadow, native meadow yeah. mm-hmm. feel. And,
2: and if you've got a few small ones, then you can put those in for your sort of walkways. And, yes, and definitely. So And have the other ones off, off to the side, because things like kangaroo grass get really too tall to be something. Yes. Well, you can't walk through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, and the wallaby grasses, which are smaller, but they're still yeah. not ones that you can really walk on yeah, top there's,
4: of. There's an, The need wallaby grass, which is hugs the ground, and that can handle some trampling. Yep. Um, but some of the, yeah, like you say, the, wallaby, um, the kangaroo grass would be way too tall. But the Mycolinus stipoides has been um, bred and hybridised to make a quite a good lawn in shade okay. in some sun. Yep. Um, and the, the really great thing about that too is it doesn't need mowing. So you, so, you need to sometimes give it a little bit of a whippersnip over yep. and then rake off the, um, the things that you've. You whip a snip off, um, but it doesn't need mowing. Yeah, so so there, there's quite a quite yeah. a, few, a me- quite good range of native plants but, that could have that meadow. But we sort
2: meal. of need to rethink that what a lawn is so that it, yes. so that it's a me- it, it is a meadow rather yes. than a, rather yeah. Than mm. a lawn. No? Yeah, yeah.
4: And that would be amazing for all... Well, we all know that um, bees, for instance, are mm. on the decline, but we have hundreds of species of um, solitary bees around Melbourne yeah. and yeah. meadow lawns like that would be amazing for... And a whole others.
2: heap of other native pollinators that mm, aren't. Definitely, bees. yes. So that, yes know, all the, definitely all the worth saying. And the yes. a whole range. Yes, of the hoverflies. Hover yeah, yeah, all yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, mm. yeah. so, and uh, look, I'm a great believer in, in people helping the environment by doing it in your own garden. So, you know, yeah. and I think it's like this whole solar panel thing. You know, so many people have put solar panels on their houses. If everybody in their own gardens got rid of lawns and started planting meadows, native meadows, yeah. um, you know, we might end up saving some of our insect species.
1: Definitely. And that I suggest we do that to football fields. Being the uh, the proud uh AFL supporter that I am um (laughs) I think there's an awful lot of wasted space in some of those sorts of areas.
4: Yeah but
2: you could I mean you could plant all the surrounds with with the Mm. native native Mm.
4: meadows. If If you ever get to Port Melbourne Lagoon Reserve is a good example of that. And some of the reserves in Bayside have the football ovals and then they have the Heath or the around. local around yep. the edges, and mm. Royal Melbourne Golf Course was actually ploughed through um, heath. So all oh. around the um, roughs mm. is amazing diversity of sand sandbelt heath plants, because mm. in the 1880s they just bulldozed the fairways through this amazing heath. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting that you can actually make that change, yeah. um, but... One thing I forgot to say is with that, on the local scale making a change, is um, recently we've signed up with City of Melbourne for the Gardens for Wildlife program. Okay. So we're the local community nursery to help support that and it's an initiative that City of Melbourne have, have come about to try and get people, even in balconies, um, yep. small gardens, to start thinking about how they can attract insects and the um, species that is on their logo is the blue-banded bee. Okay.
5: Because
2: mm-hmm. so, I, I, I think although the honeybee is incredibly important for pollination of our food crops, we've sort of let that overtake the native Mm. Australian insects and and we need to be doing a lot more for the native Australian Mm -hmm. insects. So that's my sort of project for...
4: Couldn't agree more. ...ongoingly, (laughs) (laughs) is to
2: try and... And I've been doing it in little ways, but I I need to find out more myself and I I want to push that side of... Mm.
0: Fantastic as well. Excellent. Right. Yeah. Well, it's high time we invited our listeners yes, to join us. A good idea. It certainly is. Um, if you'd like to have a chat to uh, the team this morning, we have Stephen Ryan, Penny Woodward and David Sparks in the studio. The number to call is 94190155. That's 94190155. Now, just, uh, I've only got a couple of announcements to make. Uh, First up, um, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, the friends group, are putting on a a very special um, afternoon next Sunday, the 23rd of June. Uh, Now, this is all about um, Yarra and Werribee River river keepers. Uh, So, uh, the Yarra River keeper, Andrew Kelly, and the Werribee River keeper, John Forrester, will talk about the voluntary work they do. Oh, what a good name.
1: Forester. Forester, yes. <laughs> How appropriate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so they'll be talking about enhancing habitat and health of the waterways to minimising or collecting rubbish. Um, the Arrow River usually receives plenty of publicity, while the less well-known but equally important Werribee River needs a higher profile. So uh, come along and hear about both uh, these Victorian waterways. Now it starts at two o'clock. It's being held in the auditorium down at Cranbourne Gardens, which of course is on the corner of Botanic Drive and Bellato Road in Cranbourne. Costs twenty dollars for members, twenty-five dollars for non-members, ten dollars for students. Um, and uh, you do need to book. And to book, you go to the Cranbourne Friends website, which is rbgfriendscranbourne all one word dot org. Dot au. That's rbgfriendscranbourne org au. Or if you'd like more information about it, you can contact Alex, and his uh, uh, his address is s m a r t i e smartie smarty eight at bigpond.com. So smarty, S-M-A-R-T-I-E, 38 at bigpond.com if you'd like more information about the talk next uh, Sunday afternoon. And uh, the other uh, query we had last week on air, a listener, wanted me to um, repeat, we've been talking two weeks ago um, about uh, the Grevillea peaches and cream and uh, he just wanted to double check on the parentage of that one. Now, it is uh, a cross between Grevillea Banksii and Grevillea bipinartifida. Bipinartifida. I yeah, love the name <laughs> of that one. Yeah, you've got to get your tongue around it. yeah. Um, it is of the same parentage as Superb and Robin Gordon, which I did mention last week. Um, and it has a very similar prolific and sustained flowering for that one. So uh, there you go. That's the uh, parentage. It is, of course, a hybrid between those two. All right. Well, uh, we also have to very quickly uh, listen to another message. Hello, gardeners. Pam Vardy here. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 23rd of June from 7.30 to 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show growing. Listen in on Sunday the 23rd of June and call 94198377. For great deals on seeds, new organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and new green-focused book titles. Or make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio. Join us at the station after the show from 10 to 12pm to pick up your prizes, have a cuppa and say hello. Dig deep for the 2019 3CR Gardening Radiothon. 7.30 till 10 a.m. on Sunday the 23rd of June and of course that is next Sunday it's our big day it's our one day of the year that we uh we go all out to try and raise funds to cover the costs of running a radio station and uh the 3cr gardening show in particular for the next 12 months so uh we're assembling loads and loads and loads of goodies to, uh, to tempt you with, um, as I mentioned, lots of um, books, nursery vouchers, oh, you name a product, the, the courtyard is going to start filling up with all sorts of product to tempt you with. So, uh, and we'd love to see you down here um, from 10 o'clock when we come off air. Um, I have done some baking again this year. I'd get into trouble <laughs> if I hadn't, so I can tempt you with some homemade goodies when you come down. But, uh, yes, next Sunday, folks, please, uh, try and save up a few of your dollars and cents because, um, it costs, uh, quite a lot to, uh, to run the station. Do you know that, uh, that it costs, um, $200 just to, uh, for us to, uh, put the podcast in mm. once a week. So, uh, we do really need those donations to keep us going for the next 12 months. So, uh, Dig deep.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and as one should if you want to keep us on air. And remember that we don't get paid.
3: Not so a cent.
1: Yes, we don't get anything for this. We we do it out of the kindness of our hearts. So yes, we would like to think people will dig deep to keep us on air, it'd be good.
0: Yes, exactly. Because we're one big community here, aren't we? Of a gardening we are. community. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, we'll go to our first caller and we have Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Uh, good
5: morning, Panel. Good morning. Um, Uh, I'll be moving into an apartment probably shortly and I want to get some balcony plants Mm -hmm. like philodendrons for inside and some for outside and um, I'd like uh, your recommendation for a small balcony tree.
1: Hmm. Is it going to be in a sunny spot, and you know whether it's going to be sort of facing I, east I, I or is it? I don't know yet because I haven't
5: sort of had a look at
1: hmm. it. Well, you're going to really need to know what the aspect is all about before we could give you. Any serious advice on what to pl- to to buy to plant in a pot on your balcony because it'll be different plants depending on whether it's a, a hot sunny balcony or a semi shaded balcony or, or if it's a, windy or if it's windy and all that sort of thing. So it might be one of those things. Well, there's no point in buying your plants too far in advance anyway because then you've got to look after them till you get them into their more permanent place in the new uh, in, in your new accommodation. So I'd just hang off until such time as you you you've sorted out where you're going to be living so that you can get a sense of what sort of aspects you're facing and then we can be much more, much more useful at that point
5: Right, thank you very much for that Now one other thing I love lily of the valley.
1: Can you grow that on a balcony? Mm. Lily of the valley is quite a difficult plant if it isn't happy with where you're growing it. And I think it's far better in the open ground than in a pot, because in a pot it's inclined to warm up and often dry out too much in the late summer autumn when the lily of the valley goes into its dormancy. Um, I mean, the thing with lily of the valley, though, is you can go out and buy a pot of it for you know, $15 or something like that. It's not necessarily terribly expensive to buy. So I wouldn't discourage you from having a go, but I think you need to do it rationally and realise that it's always going to be a slightly risky plant to keep alive. And lily of the valley is not a good pot plant either from the perspective that it spends a lot of time being dormant. Mm. So you're going to end up with a pot full of potting mix and nothing to look at for quite some months of the year. And in a small space like a balcony, I see those sorts of plants as being a bit of a waste of space. But, could, yeah. but
2: Stephen, the other thing you can do is treat it like a bunch of flowers and you can go and buy one that's about to come into flower. Yeah, you and enjoy, enjoy it for it. Mm. the two months that it's in flower mm. and then and then you recycle it.
1: Yeah, yeah give you it can do that. give it to somebody yeah. else or yeah.
2: whatever. So if you love Lily of the Valley, which mm. I do love yeah, Lily of the Valley, then, it, then it's worth, you know, maybe it's worth spending what you might spend for a bunch of flowers. Mm. And get the pleasure from it.
1: Yeah, yeah but it, certainly don't expect it to be a useful long-term plant uh, in the sort of situation you're thinking of, Anne.
0: Okay, Anne. Oh, okay. Then, so give us a call back you when you've show. relocated. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye.
1: Thanks.
0: That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number's 94190155. Now, Stephen, you've got a talk coming up too. Yes,
1: uh, for Plant Trust. Uh, yep. We've decided to do a, uh, a winter talk because uh, going out visiting gardens and things can be a little fraught in the middle of winter. It can be. Uh, so we're going to have uh, an evening at Domain House in Dallas Brooks Drive. Uh, it will be on Wednesday the 3rd of July. Uh, it will start at 6.30, there will be nibblies and a glass of wine and things to have and the talk will probably start about 7.00. And it's going to be a PowerPoint presentation done by yours truly of the trip that Craig and I did to Corsica mm, um, be great. 18, 18 months ago. So I've been putting the pictures together recently. So it'll be a PowerPoint presentation of our trip around Corsica. Okay. Uh, so you'll see wildflowers, you'll see quaint and gorgeous little villages, you'll see beautiful coastlines, you'll 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 see all sorts of interesting Corsican things. Uh, so if you've ever thought about wanting to go there, it might be. A Good opportunity to come along and just, uh, um, sort of get a taste for Corsica mm. or in fact if you've always liked the idea of Corsica but will never get there it's one way of actually seeing something <laughs> of the place
0: You can pretend you're
1: there Yeah, well exactly um, So it costs um, $15 for members uh, $20 for non-members um, and we'd like to see a nice crowd come along and of course uh, funds raised will help support Plant Trust and the work they do in trying to keep um, plant collections registered and, and uh, extant when something happens to somebody who owns a collection, all that sort of stuff. So mm. so we're calling it Corsica of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh it should be a, a, a very pleasant evening. So oh, that's Wednesday we? the third at six thirty at Domain House. And if anybody doesn't not quite sure where it is, if you are standing in front of the herbarium facing straight ahead from the Herbarium. Dallas Brooks Drive is the little road that runs straight down in front of the Herbarium, and the main House is the white building about halfway along Dallas Brooks Drive on the left, ha- uh, right-hand side, just near the Trobe's Cottage, in yep, fact. Yep. So um, it's an easy enough venue to find. Um, and, and there's
2: usually pretty good parking to yeah, down. Yeah, down through there's that there's area, areas, yeah. all, all around at, Birdwood at, Avenue. At, at night, you'll yep. have no problem. Yeah,
1: so it's a good spot to, yep. to come into, um, and on a Wednesday night, it should be reasonably. It should be be fine. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so hopefully we'll see a good crowd of people along there that perhaps haven't been involved in something that Plant Trust is doing because mm. we'd like to sort of spread our wings and, you know, engage with a whole range of uh, new people. Um, and you will find that Plant Trust, if you do get involved, not only does all the good work of getting uh, registered collections in, in order – But we also have some good excursions and do some interesting stuff. So, if you got involved, you then would be in the mailing list. You'd know what we're up to. Uh, You'd get our regular quarterly newsletter. Um, So, there's all sorts of things going on with Plant Trust. Mm. So, there you go. Corsica, of course, on the 3rd of um, July. Fantastic. So, there we go.
0: Yeah. Now, Penny, you should explain why you've been in in Ballarat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been in Ballarat. I think I mentioned it last time I was on, but I've been... um, helping with the exhibition of my friend Liz Suter's, um baskets. So it's the last day today. I'm going to oh, okay. go back up there today um, and then we'll be packing up all the baskets and taking them back to all the very kind people who lent them to us. Um, and it's been a fantastic experience. And, and um, the, the, it's actually been based in a gallery that's part of the Ballarat Art Gallery, but it's out the back and they call it the Backspace Gallery. And... Um, it's it's um, for local artists to display their work of all sorts of genre, but um, they haven't had a basket exhibition for a while and it's been the best attended exhibition that they've ever had. Really? So it's just been extraordinary. Wow. Liz was Good. an amazing person and and, and um, she made the most beautiful baskets and her daughter Kate and I put have put together a book um, of it. So if you haven't been able to get to the exhibition and you're interested in baskets... Um, you can communicate with me through email, but on my website, pennywoodwood.com.au, um, I do have some copies for sale. So we've almost sold out, but we're going to—I think after today, we'll have maybe 20 or 30 copies left. So okay. if anyone's interested, you'll be able to buy them through my website, and they're $20 plus $3 postage. So. I'll try and um, send a copy of the cover to Liz so that you can get an idea of, of what it looks like. But it's 120 pages of, um, of beautiful photographs. My son, Dan, took all the photographs. So it's been a real family thing, but it's, it's really professionally done. And, it's and a lovely little book. He it also really did the design, and it tells the story of all the natural resources that she used to create her baskets. And, and it's everything from tiny little baskets made out of pine needles that are stitched, Gosh. that are just extraordinary to the giant one on the front cover which is nearly two and a half metres high um, and it's modelled on the shape of the South Channel light, the South Channel buoy um, in Port Philippine mm. um, but based on Hunza um, techniques uh, of, of putting it together so and it uses four different sorts of timber that were harvested from her garden as well as the rattan that is so you know extraordinary baskets and one of the things I love about them is that they they're really utilitarian. So there's one particular basket that she made quite a few of that use um sharpened pe- fence posts you know fence what do they call them droppers oh droppers yes For um. Legs. Um, and they're pumpkin baskets, so you fill them up with your pumpkins at the end of the season and, and you have this beautiful, this beautiful basket full of pumpkins that you can enjoy as you gradually eat your, eat your pumpkins. And, you know, just a, a whole range of, of just beautiful baskets. So wow. It's, it's been a very special time for all of us, mm. all for her daughter Kate. and... Um, and um, uh, uh, and her granddaughter Saskia, and and it's just been um, it's been lovely to be able to share it with all of Liz's friends. It's sort of like been having Liz there again for a little well, while. Well, it, it's yeah. it's it's
0: a wonderful celebration and, of her life.
2: Yeah, and but and her work. So the book ended up. I realised as we were working on it that what we've ended up with is a biography in baskets. Mm. So it tells you about Liz. It tells you why she developed this love of her craft. The sort of resources and the you know jack with this another really beautiful basket that's made out of jacaranda twigs. Oh yes, no, and they're just they're all stitched together and it just looks extraordinary. Um, and lined with banana skin paper. So if
1: people wanted to see the exhibition, they've only got today Not to only do got it. today so between
2: it. 12 and 4 in in Ballarat at the back of the Ballarat Art Gallery. Mm. Um, and after that, it's gone and it won't be coming back. And if you want, if you're interested in in the book, as I said, there's about 20 or 30 copies left and you
0: can get them through my website.
1: Fantastic.
0: Brilliant. Okay, excellent. Stephen, we might as well go to another plant. Yes, why don't
1: we? Well, actually, something that I've always had a soft spot for, it's not a particularly rare plant, um, but it's a great winter flowering plant, uh, is the um, what was Iris stylosa is now Iris unguicularis, which is a bit of a mouthful.
2: Is that to do with ungulates? and? Um, I'm not quite
1: sure, actually. No, it's one of those same, names I must look same up. derivation, yeah, probably. Yeah, it probably problem. is. Um, but uh, you could call it an Algerian iris if you wanted yeah. to. That would help. Um, they are tough. They will grow in the driest, hottest, most difficult spot in the garden. They make a quite large permanent clump of foliage Mm. uh, and some people do cut the foliage right back just before flowering so that the flowers aren't hidden amongst the leaves. I have to say I don't normally do that because I think it looks odd. Mm. Uh, I'd rather just have the flowers coming up amongst the foliage. they have this sort of thing that's had a short back and sides, mm. a bit like what they do to deities and lamandras and things in, oh, in yes. roundabouts, <laughs> um, which drives me insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I wouldn't be cutting them back myself. You
2: could thin them out a bit, though, couldn't you? Oh, you, you could, cut, yeah. You could go through and cut out yeah. some of the yellowing leaves and but, give um, the flowers a bit more. I like
1: it actually, well, I like it in the garden, but I actually like it as a cut flower. Mm. So I go through and cut buds when they're just in colour, just about to open up, and use them in the house. It has a lovely... Delicate scent, uh, it comes in a beautiful, well there's several forms of it lurking around, but this is the, the wild form which is in, in a sort of a deep rich sort of lavender blue, um, and of course like most irises there's other colours in the flower as well, so you've got sort of white feathering and a, and a, a little yellow tongue that runs down the centre of the falls, Um So, it's look, it's a common old thing, but you don't see it ran for sale in nurseries Mm. very often. Um, uh, It's one of those plants that's often sort of swapped between home gardeners, Mm. really. It's how it finds its way around, really. And there is a slightly shy flowering white form out there. Uh, There is one that has uh, sort of striped, Stripy dark purple in the in the flowers, which apparently is a virus, uh, so may or may not be something you should be encouraging, but it is a beautiful flower, and there is a really, really disgusting pale pink one. Uh, Called funnily enough Starkers Pink, um, and I would not recommend the pink one. I think it's okay. yeah, it's a, a sort of a dirty, miserable yes. colour, okay. and and it's not also it's also not a particularly good flowering form. So the the wild f- version in its rich blue, I think, is still the best. Mm. Um, and you can use it, you know, sort of on the sunny side at the base of hedges. You can use it in all sorts of places that would be really difficult to grow many other plants. And you get this wonderful splash of colour in the winter months. Mm. So, Iris unguicularis. I think it's a, a great old standby, and probably should be making a comeback in more people's gardens. I think mm. it's just one of those plants that was once upon a time very common. It was. You don't see it around anywhere near as much as you used to. Um, and with gardening becoming a little more difficult as the climate changes, I think some really tough old stalwarts are actually Indeed. well worth having. Indeed. Yep. Uh, so So, uh, I must have consider- a
0: look and see if mine's flowering yet.
1: Yeah. Look, uh, I've only got a. Few Few of them flowering in pots at the moment. My plants in the garden at home have got buds starting to come up. Uh, I think because they're in pots, the the stock for sale has actually warmed up. Yeah. 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 Uh, its root system more, so it's actually brought it out into flower fractionally earlier than the ones and in the ground. Well probably
2: will. had more regular water. Well, that's, yeah, yes, that's well, true.
1: In pots, things do tend to get more watering, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think it's a great old plant, and so mm. well worthwhile sourcing. Uh, mm. It's one of those things you'll often find on stalls that, you know, garden clubs and all that sort of thing where people pot up spare plants and, and what have you. But, you know, you'll see it around the nurseries occasionally uh, and it's certainly worth picking up in whichever way you get it. Mm, absolutely. So, yes, so the winter or Siberian iris or Algerian iris or whatever you want to call the damn thing. Um, and iris stylosa was a nice, easy name, but anyhow. <laughs> can't help name changes, unfortunately. Exactly.
0: Okay, let's go to our next caller and we have uh, Wendy out in Reservoir. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, how are you? We're well. Hold on, I'm just putting my radio down.
3: Oh, and good on we'll, you. Oh, please
1: do. Yes, it all gets a <laughs> yeah. little confusing.
0: Yeah, uh, first of all,
3: I wanted to thank, I think it was Penny, for the visual uh, walk down um, the Ballarat Botanical Gardens. I'm from Ballarat originally.
2: Nice. Oh, good on and, you. And
3: um, I could visualise it all, so just as you described it. And I haven't been there for a while, so it's quite nice. Yeah. Oh.
2: Good
5: on
3: um, you. What I'm calling about, I have a crape myrtle, which has got a bit out of hand. I haven't pruned it for a few years. And I'm just wondering when is a good time to prune it and how far back?
1: Well, if you want to prune a crepe myrtle, I actually prefer not pruning crepe myrtles because I think their natural form is by far more attractive than the truncated look you tend to create Mm. when you prune them. Mm -hmm. But if you do feel the need to prune it because it's getting too big for the site or whatever, too, too tall, basically. Yeah. Yeah, but is what is too tall? <laughs> uh, That's true. Yeah, well, I, I don't
3: know. Should, I could let it go? I guess.
1: But yeah, look, if yeah. it's not if it's not causing any grief as far as I don't know, growing up under the eaves of the house or growing into mm. the overhead lines or or whatever, I would actually think that its height shouldn't matter much. So, okay, how, I wasn't sure how, was how it, tall do the they, they get. Regular-
3: pruning
1: or not no well a lot of people say that you should prune them every year to encourage flowering but that doesn't seem to make any difference whatsoever about flowering so there's no imperative to prune but if you want to do it you do it in the winter
3: good okay
1: well if there's no need to do the work then I won't do it yeah well I often think the the best way to garden is to do the least work you have to do Uh, and so if there's something you don't actually have to do because it's not necessary then why on earth do it Exactly. Um, And And I've seen some really ugly ones, and it's just very unfortunate. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Got another quick question, if I'm able to. Sure. Um, I have a beautiful tree, one of my favourites, I guess you call it a tree or a shrub, uh, that my mother grew for me from a seed. She had it in her garden. And I'm not quite sure the name. It's something like a Japanese spice tree or an Indian spice tree. Now, it loses all its leaves in winter, but it comes out with quite a small flower. Um, but a very strong uh, spicy scent that you can smell often metres away just when you open the back door. Does it ring a bell with anybody?
2: I think there's one in the Botanic Gardens around the herb garden and I think it it is called something like the Japanese spice.
1: I'm not familiar with it. It's something Uh, I haven't come across. It's...
3: So I'll try and track it down, and when I do, I'll pass
1: the details on to you. Yeah, well, we'd certainly like to have a name, because if we, particularly yeah. if we've got a botanical name, it means that we can do a lot more looking up and finding out about a plant. Uh, okay. Common yeah. names don't always translate yeah. when you when you do a search <laughs> for them on the net. But mm. uh, Penny's got her, uh, her uh, iPad here at the moment, so she's madly flicking to see if she can pull up something. Um a
3: hardy one, because... Mm. Um, I mean, part of it died with the drought last year, some of it, but um, it's pretty hardy. I'm growing it in pretty solid clay soil. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and my mother, she had a lovely plant that was there for as long as I can remember, actually. So.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it could be and one I of those things that
3: needs to make a comeback.
2: It's possible that it's um obtusifolia. obtusifolia. Oh, okay. um, And yeah. it's called the blunt-lobed spice bush. It's a species of flowering plant. It's in the Lauraceae family. It doesn't have particularly
1: um, scented flowers, though. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. one's okay. got a
3: very, a, is a very strong scent. Because glossy
2: aromatic leaves with deep yellow flowers which appear in spring
3: before mm. the leaves? No, no, the, the flowers are out now, not in spring.
1: They come oh, out okay. in early winter. I'm right. so well, nice sure you're not one. talking about a winter sweet. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I'm thinking too. I, I, I'm having this sort of thought that it could even be uh, what we would call winter sweet or allspice bush, uh, oh, which no, is...
3: Oh, winter the name allspice bush,
1: yes. Yeah, well, that's Kim and Kimonanthus praecox and we've got bits of it hanging around the studio everywhere because we've both, both Pam and I bought in specimens of it and they're little lemony bells sort of flowers that sort of face downwards on the branches, and it has bright green foliage that um, uh, goes yellowy before it drops in the autumn, and it would be in flower now, and it has a lovely perfume. So I wonder whether it isn't, in fact, the, the what we would call winter sweet. So, winter sweet. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh,
3: what, can you just give me that um, technical name again?
1: Chimananthus, uh, which is C-H-I-M-O-N-A-N-T-H-U-S. Yeah. T-H-U-S. Yeah, yeah. So if you look if you look that up on Mr Google or whatever, yeah. uh, you'll get a photo. You'll get a photo of the flower come up, and you should easily be able to work out whether that's in fact what it is.
3: Wonderful. And I'll email and uh, the program and let you know. Yeah. And good. help for both my questions.
1: All right. Fantastic. Bye.
0: Okay. Bye. Right, bye. <laughs> bye.
1: Yes. I, th- I my gut feeling is it's. Yeah. A yeah it's there. my yeah. gut it feeling yeah. too. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, next up we have uh, Lee in Merricks North.
1: Good morning, Lee.
5: Oh, good morning, panel. Good morning. It's a lovely still morning in Merricks North. It's oh, cool. good. Everything's very damp and very green. Good. Um, uh, Stephen, I heard you yesterday saying it wasn't a good time to plant citrus, but I have an avocado that I've been nursing in a pot for quite some time and I thought it might be a good time to put it in the ground. Yeah, look, I think any of
1: those sort of subtropical trees are better spring-planted. Depends, it depends mm. a
2: bit which avocado, because some are more cold tolerant.
5: Yeah, well, there is that others. as well,
1: of course. So, uh, it, is it a seedling one or is it a, a grafted avocado?
5: No, no, it's a good proper one from um, a <laughs> good, good well-known nursery down here. All oh, right, so yeah, so it's, a, it's a, a named. Huss. I think it's a house. Yeah, you know.
1: well, one of the named clones, so that's probably yeah, a good well, one anyway. Well,
2: house is not one of the definitely cold tolerant ones mm. um but it is i've got has in my garden in summers mm-hmm. and it's doing really well yeah
1: um, but i'd still plant most of those sort of things in the spring i'd wait till yes spring i too. would too that's yeah. i nursed it through the very dry season no. yeah nursery and i just thought maybe it's time to get
2: it down yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. yeah. Well, your,
2: your main problem will be the cold yes. So if you're in merrick's where it you know, inland a little bit and you get frosts, um, I wouldn't be planting it out yet, unless mm. you're prepared to build a sort of mini greenhouse or something over it to get it through the last of the cold weather. No, it can stay where it is, that's all yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> right
1: well it's survived was... so far, so yeah. just be yeah. a bit more patient. But that it wouldn't be... hurt to do a bit of ground preparation where you're going to plant it and get oh, some... I've done all of that. Oh, I good. the plum in that hole, in that spot, oh, and right. I've been
5: feeding it up and putting bits of this and that. Yeah.
2: And, you, and you do know that you'll get better fruit set if you've got a second avocado, don't you? Oh, I'll
5: have to think about along the lines of that. Yes, yeah. all right. Thank you,
2: Penny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, they, you have A and B sorts as far as the flowering goes, mm. and I can't remember whether huss is an A or B. I think it's an A. I've
5: tried again and again with avocados up here without yep. uh, any success. I've, okay. had, well, I've moved them, I've put them in less windy spots. and
1: Well, they do like a bit of shelter, and they, they, they do like a, a nice warmish aspect. I mean, if you're getting the cold blasts coming through, mm. they don't like that sort but
2: of thing. But they also don't like the intense heat of mm. the middle of summer. It actually yeah. burns the leaves. Okay. Well, this so is
5: a nice spot within, within a very large hedged orchard. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. There's sounds lot perfect. There's yep. a there. I thought yep. that the extra protection from the Yep, might
1: sounds good. Alright, best of luck with that.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, bye. bye.
1: Yes, avocados are something I haven't played with at this no, point so in time at yeah, Macedon. Probably a little bit cold. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Although yeah. my citrus do really well. So yeah, although
2: yeah. I know I know someone who had a fabulous avocado tree in Bendigo. And oh, there you had go. Really, but yeah, he must have got it up to a decent height, mm. um, protecting it from frost. Mm. Well, I know where there's really a, really a seedling
1: avocado dense. growing up on Mount yep. Macedon against a, a yep. westerly wall, yep. and it, it would be four or five metres yep. tall. Mm. Uh, and so it's come through many a winter so far. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's ever fruited, but it was one that was raised from a seed yeah. you know, and just planted out. And it's a very handsome evergreen tree, I guess, yes, even if you never get are, any, any fruit off them. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So there we go. Yep. All right.
0: Personally, I think they're a bit disappointing if you don't get any fruit. Well, there is that side
1: of it. I mean, if <laughs> you if are you planting do, one. I've had
0: fruit on mine. Mm.
5: And, yep.
2: and if you do get fruit, they're fantastic because they ripen off the tree. That's and You right. can leave them on the tree and just pick them a, f- a week or As so you before want you want yeah. to use yeah. it. Mm. yeah. And um, they last on the tree for, you know, several months before, yeah. before they all have to be harvested. So yeah. even if they, you know, you get a big crop, you can just leave them on the tree. You know, mm-hmm. so, yes, you
1: don't, you don't have to have a glut. No. No, exactly. Well,
0: there you go. Okay, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we're running through until 9.15, our usual time slot, 94190155. We've got Stephen Ryan, Penny Woodward and David Sparks in the studio this morning. So we'd love to hear from you, 94190155. David, what are some of the most uh, popular... Um, plants that, that you are repeatedly being asked for.
4: Yep, so a lot of things we get asked for, especially around Melbourne, are the screening plants oh, yeah. and um, plants that need are in dry, shady areas. So a lot of the screening plants we suggest, a lot of issues we have with our customers coming in, they say... Um, a new building that's four stories high is coming up right on our mm-hmm. fence. And yes. <laughs> everybody's yeah, everybody's yeah. going through that one. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't want bamboo or they want a native plant. So we normally suggest things like the acacias for that. Because right. they're really fast growing, like the blackwood. Yep. Um, and for the really shady, dry areas, again, because people put up four story houses and their gardens don't get any sun, we suggest things like reflexes. And the Corriers, the Corriers are really quite amazing locally because they really, in the shade, don't need any water. Mm. And they flower in winter, which is quite um, quite different for a lot of our local native plants. Mm-hmm. So in a, if you have a purely local native plant garden, it's pretty dreary in winter. Mm-hmm. But the reflects that mm-hmm. you can get it in a green and you can get it in a red or a red and green. And it gives that splash of colour throughout.
2: Yeah, it feeds the little honey eaters who get in there amongst the flowers and it's really good for the native insects as well. So it's a terrific plant for all those reasons. Mm, Very
4: good. Yeah, and we also, we're getting more and more questions about what you can put on balconies and in pots and a lot of people come in with almost a fetus, Question about oh you can't grow natives in pots can you and we're like well actually you can um, where did they get that from yeah I'm, I'm not sure there's <laughs> lots of myths and I
1: history know. about uh, plants particularly our native plants yeah. I think
0: we need to debunk a few myths mm. I think yes. yeah yeah anyway. I think
4: that could be something worth doing maybe in the future I could yes. come up with a, a list of myths that I've I've had over the last seven years um, and saying how Yeah, debunk them. Um, But, yeah, there's so many things you can put in pots. So a lot of our little lilies, which I think I talked about before, like chocolate, even the murnongs are really good. They Mm. died down, so they're better off in pots because you know where they are. Mm. Yes, good point. And I've grown a few of those lilies in our garden, and snails love them. And I've actually seen a snail corkscrew down into the tuber and eat out part of the tuber so that once that happens, um, that's the end of the plant. So they're really good for um, pots, but we... A lot of our plants are really good for pots. Mm. Yeah, that's good.
2: And you can get, um, you know, pots don't have to be full of flowering things. So, You know, obviously flaring things i think even you know some pots with grasses in them can look fantastic with when particularly when they set the seed and Mm. and they're there for a long time Mm. as well and Mm -hmm. and you can get different colors i mean some of the small wallaby grasses look fabulous in a in a contrasting colored pot it can look
0: and if you get movement of a breeze it can look stunning Yes. yes
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways that they can be used. Definitely. And, yep.
0: Yep. Excellent. We've had a query from the outside line. What is the best procedure for shifting a four-year-old rhododendron?
1: Dig it up. <laughs> um, rhododendrons have a very fibrous root system which stays quite close to the trunk of the plant. And they're one, probably one of the easiest plants to move because you'll get a nice ball of root system with all its attendant soil, um, just by going around with a sharp spade. uh, If it's four years old, I reckon if you went sort of half a metre out from the, the foliage area all the way around the tree so that you ended up with about a metre wide ball. Uh, it'll only be um, probably 15 or 20 centimetres deep, the root system, so okay. you can easily whip underneath it and move it. Um, and it's one of those plants, that I'm old enough to remember when the old Dutch nurserymen up in the Dandenongs used to sell their open paddock rhododendrons mm-hmm. and they used to wrap them in a hessian ball yep. uh, with yep. some baling twine around it and you'd actually buy your rhododendron like that yep. um, In flower out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's how they were sold. Uh, So, rhododendrons are one of the, as long as you can grow the rhododendron in the first place, they're one of the easiest things to, in fact, move around. And I've shifted, you know, sort of three-metre rhododendrons mm. uh, with would no you, problems.
2: you, after you've replanted, would you prune the tree back? Uh,
1: it depends. If I get a good bigger ball of root system out, I probably wouldn't uh, because rhododendrons are comparatively slow-growing, so if you do have to prune it back quite away, you're going to, in fact, take a long time to get a good-sized rhododendron back again. And certainly the ones we used to buy from the hills, you, you, you never pruned those. You sold them in flower and people took them home, whacked them straight in the garden. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't if you got a good ball of root out. If, for whatever reason, there was an issue and you lost a bit of root system... Then I would probably think about pruning the top back a bit, and like most things, when you shift them, I'd give nearly anything I shift a good dose of seaweed um, uh, liquid when, when you replant, just to give it a bit of a tonic to start it off. Mm. Um, don't overfeed when yeah, you shift. Yeah,
2: don't don't fertilise.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and rhododendrons are not a heavy feeding plant anyway, so um, lots of fertiliser is not necessarily a good idea. Um, they like. Compost and leaf mould and stuff And perhaps a little bit of uh, cow manure Or something mild like that But they're certainly not heavy feeding plants So mm. you don't need to feed rhododendrons madly Just keep them well mulched mm. um, So yeah, and now would be a good time to lift it Now that we've had a bit of rain As long as the root system you might It might pay to water the plant really well A day or two before you shift it To make sure the water has got down below the root system uh, But it should shift easily It shouldn't even realise it's been done mm. So yeah, rhododendrons are easy Brilliant. There you
0: go. Okay. Another plant, Stephen.
1: All right. Well, we were just talking about dry shade, so there's a segue. <laughs> um, I have a plant that does exceedingly well in dry shade, and um, they're commonly known in Europe as sweetbox. Uh, they're botanically known as Um This one is Psychococcus orientalis. Uh, the more common one around is one called Ruscifolia. Uh There's also one called um, Confusa. There's a range of different species of Sarchococcas. They have... Solid, evergreen, glossy, dark foliage. Uh, this particular one, Orientalis, only grows to probably about a metre tall and nearly as wide. Uh, they're winter flowering and they have flowers that are composed basically of stamens. They don't have any, um, petals and things. So you get these little clusters of white stamens. They have a nice scent, hence sweet box. And so they flower in the winter. You get this lovely perfume from them. Uh, They get berries on them after the flowering, and in the case of this particular one, the berries are black, but you can also get red-berried varieties. Okay. Um, And they grow really well somewhere where they get no direct sunlight at all um, and will cope with comparatively dry soil as well. I mean, I know one or two plants that are even more dry-tolerant than this one is, but a well-grown Sarcococca will cope with quite dry soil um, and certainly somewhere it gets no direct sun. And as was mentioned before, a lot of people's gardens are becoming shadier and shadier. So Mm. finding plants that not only will cope with those conditions but actually flourish and look good um, is something that most people are out there trying to do. And funnily enough, the nursery industry doesn't tend to cater for dry shade as much Mm. as you'd think they should. Mm. And so you often go around the nurseries and you can find almost nothing that's going to grow well in dry shade. Uh, And yet our gardens are becoming more like that. Mm. So, the sarcococcus, I think, are an interesting group of plants, well worth considering. Uh, they're all Asian. They come from China and Japan and Korea, all through that part of the world. Uh, and they could make a really good alternative to box bush uh, in the shade for a small hedge. Okay. So, um,
2: lovely glossy leaves. Yeah, the so leaves are yeah. really good.
1: This one has a comparatively large leaf as far as the genus is concerned. Some of them are much smaller leafed. Mm. Uh, and. Now, as much as box bush is probably a very good plant for its purpose, as in a small hedge because it doesn't grow too fast and you can trim it once or twice a year, and that's it and there's not many alternatives to box that make a nice, neat dwarf mm. hedge um, but it's boring. <laughs> I it's just so boring. And there's just got to be other alternatives out there. And certainly this Sarkococca will grow far better than Box will in fairly heavy shade. Mm. So uh, it won't cope well without in the full sun, so I wouldn't even consider it if you're planting a hedge in a sunny aspect. But if you want something for the shade and you wanted a nice little border hedge that can be trimmed or just allowed to grow as a sort of a domey screen more than a hedge mm. um, then you could do far worse than planting sarcococca mm. so uh, and the perfume is lovely and it's and it's in the winter which I think is always useful which
0: is great yeah very useful
1: yeah so I think they're a great group of plants there's a fair bit of um, misnaming going on out there in the trade I bought these as already grown plants from somebody under a name that I thought I was getting a different species
5: okay <laughs> and but- when they arrived I thought
1: that doesn't look like that sarcococca. that's sarcococca orientalis, oops. So I then had to go around and relabel them all. Um, but they do all look fairly similar, so I can understand why there would be confusion okay. uh, around the trade um, with the names of different ones. So I'm always a bit hesitant if I buy stock in. If I've propagated my own off my own stock plant, I know exactly what I've got. Exactly. Um, but I've regularly ended up with Confusa instead of Ruscafolia, and in this case I've ended up with Orientalis instead of... Um, Uh, Hookeriana, which is what this was supposed to be. Um, But they're all good shrubs, so from Mm. the point of view of a home gardener, it probably doesn't matter too much, as long as you know how big the particular one you've bought will grow to. So Sarcococca orientalis, there you go. Mm. So that's another one. Excellent. And if we've got anybody ringing through, well, there's one I really wanted to talk about this morning because it's one of those plants that I haven't had for sale for ages and ages, and I'm really chuffed that I've got a a batch of them that I've managed to source recently. It's the Marlborough rock daisy from New Zealand. And it grows in the Marlborough Sound on the cliffs uh, on both North and South Island. It is endangered in the wild, so it's not particularly common even in the wild, although it's a very popular garden plant in New Zealand, so you see it used a lot in gardens over there. And you don't see it here very often, and it's not a hard plant to grow, but it's a hard plant to propagate. You normally raise it from seed, and it's one of those daisy things that you can sow all this what looks like fantastic seed and nothing happens. And then the next year you'll sow it from the same plant, and you'll get a batch, and you think, well, and, and doing exactly the same thing you did the year before. And so it, it's one of those sort of... It's cantankerous. It is a cantankerous plant, but it is a fantastic shrub. It's evergreen. It only grows to about a metre tall by a little wider than it is tall, so you get this lovely moundy bush that grows right down to ground level. It has huge, big, white reverse leaves, and the new leaves that come up are covered in white fur, And so... When you look at dwarf shrubs, they tend to have leaves that are proportionate to the size of the plant. So most dwarf shrubs have small leaves. This has big, bold, Mm. Gutsy leaves And it's it still a dwarf does. shrub So it's a very bold And interesting plant in foliage And its foliage is beautiful all year round And if it did no more than that I'd be more than happy to grow it and sell it uh, But it gets these big Pristine white Clean daisy flowers From these really beautiful buds That sit well above the foliage So they come up on stems About right. 10 or 15 centimetres above the, uh, above the foliage And the flowers are big They last for a long time And they're a really beautiful Pristine white Um, so the Mulber rock daisy there are actually two species in the genus if you accept the fact that the genus exists at all because there are some people who are talking about it being dumped in with Olyria, and we have quite a number of Olyria species here in Australia, but New Zealand is virtually the epicentre of the genus. Um, And so this may end up being Olyria insignus, but if it's going to stay as Pachystegia insignus, there are two species, insignus which has the silver fur on the leaves and one called Rufa that has coppery, Um, Fur on the leaves, which Mm. is just gorgeous and I managed to kill my stock plant a few years ago and I haven't been able to replace it since but um, I think they're a great group of plants, the mulberry rock daisies Mm. and they're, they're sort of an iconic New Zealand plant in their home country, everybody wants to grow them and does, uh, but you just don't see it grown here much. Likes a reasonably open sunny aspect, um, likes reasonably good drainage, although being a New Zealand native plant it's not completely drought hardy, so it does need a little bit of irrigation to keep it going over the summer, but although it's hard to propagate, or a bit miffy to propagate, it's not a hard plant to grow on once you've got it, so if you can buy a plant of it, uh, I would... Thoroughly recommended. It's a really, really pretty thing. So, Pacostegia in Cygnus, uh, the New Zealand Marlborough rock daisy. Frost? Doesn't seem to be particularly frost tender. Um, certainly, it goes through any frost I can throw at it at Macedon without, okay. without even thinking Fine. about it. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to grow it in Kyneton or Trentham or some okay. of those places that you get really heavy frosts. Yeah. So, it seems to go down to quite low temperatures with a plum. So it's more the really stinking hot, dry period of summer that you might have to uh, sort of baby it through a wee bit. Yeah, uh, Okay. But not excessively. It's not like a hydrangea or something that you've got to keep madly watered. Mm. It just doesn't want to dry right out.
0: No. Fair enough. So
1: I think it's a great plant. So pa- uh, pakistegia is um, just this interesting New Zealand plant, um, and I do find it really fascinating that New Zealand is so close to Australia geographically and yet has apart from a few plants that we have in common, uh, has such a completely different palette of mm. plant material from Australia. Mm. Uh, it really intrigues me and, and, and different adaptations than we have in a lot of our plants. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah. I think, I, think,
0: I think that one's particularly handsome. I oh, love the foliage.
1: It's a beautiful... I would really quite literally plant it even if it never flowered. Yep. But it will, uh, and it'll flower reasonably young. I'd be surprised if the young plants I've got at the moment um, don't flower next year. So, you know, perhaps a 12-month wait is all you're going to have. And then yeah. you should start getting Excellent. the daisies. And they're on long enough stems that they would actually be quite useful for picking. Okay. So they could make quite a nice cut flower. Bonus. As well. yeah. 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 So okay. there you go. The stems are nearly as long as the gerberas. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, so there you okay. go. Okay, fabulous.
0: So, uh, now, we've got a query which they want directed to you, Stephen. Uh-oh. Um, uh, what's the best approach for pruning an old and large lilac plant? It's over one metre wide in the clump and about four metres high, and it's starting to overarch.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, if, if you don't want it to do that, again, there's no reason why you can't just leave it alone if, in fact, the plant isn't getting in the way or whatever. Uh, I mean, a big old billowing lilac in full bloom can be quite... Mm. Something. I mean, it can mm. be really the fantastic. perfume
4: can be brilliant. Oh,
1: yes. I have to say, though, lilac flowers for about a week and a half. Yes. And I would much rather people gave me bunches of lilac to take home from their garden <laughs> than from me to grow them in my exactly. own. But um, uh, they are gorgeous plants, and I oh, really yeah. love seeing them in other people's gardens. And uh,
0: some of them are prone to suckering, too. And
1: they do sucker, and that's a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that you're getting replacement branches that are coming from below ground level. So what I would be doing with an old lilac, if you think it's getting a bit too woody and a bit too over the top, is actually go through and colour out some of the trunks right off at ground level, mm. some of the oldest ones, and encourage those suckers to take over. But you do it over a period of several years. Yep. Uh, and that way you refurbish the whole bush. And that would be the best way to do it. And I would prune it back... Because I'm greedy, I would prune it back straight after flowering is when I would take out some major leaders and things. Um, uh, And then hopefully by the following spring, some of the branches you've left will still flower well and the new branches that are coming up because you've allowed light in and and you've stimulated the bush. So a lot of those suckers will start to really move quite fast. Uh, Within a year or so, the suckers will be starting to come on board with flowers as well. Mm. So that's what I would do. I would completely remove a, a percentage of the older trunks. Um, so as simple as that. And just pick the worst ones to start with, and then work your way through. Yep, sounds good. But yeah, over three or four years, probably you'd, you'd refurbish the whole plant.
0: Yep, excellent. So there you go. Excellent. Okay, uh, we are running through until nine fifteen. So if you'd like to give us a call while you've got the opportunity. We've got Stephen Penny and David Sparks in the studio this morning, so do give us a call. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Um, I think we've still got another plant Yes, left. we
1: have, and it is up on our Facebook page, so I might as Good. well talk about them all so that people won't go, well, what was that thing? Yes. <laughs> and this is a, a shrub that I've always had a great soft spot for, a thing called Stachyurus. And this one is also Stachyurus praecox, so it's early flowering. So if you see praecox on something, that's what it means. Now, Stachyurus are basically deciduous plants, but they tend to uh, shed their leaves quite late, so it can be well into winter before the foliage colours and sheds. And it will colour in... Non-cold environments, so it's one of those plants that you could put in a city garden and still get lovely autumn colour on it, Mm -hmm. or early winter autumn colour in a sense, if that makes any sense. Um, It's a, a large shrub and it comes up from multiple stems at ground level and then they come out and they go out almost flat in a horizontal sort of layered tiered sort of effect so by removing low branches so that you can get in under the plant and look up through it and then you can perhaps even have it coming up and arching over a path um, is probably one of the best ways to grow it because when it flowers which it does in the late winter uh, it gets these pendant spikes quite stiff pendant spikes they don't sort of sit there dangling they're actually quite stiff so if you lift the branch up the spikes will sort of sit Mm -hmm. out sideways Um, of really pretty limey, lemony coloured flowers on them. Uh, it's not perfumed, uh, but because it's got the flat branches and and these stiff spikes hanging underneath the branches, it's a very elegant plant in flower. And because the flowers are under the branches, it is actually nice to grow it up big enough so that you can sort of look up into the the Mm. plant. Mm. If it's it's too low, most of the flowers are down low and you can't see them. Mm. So Uh, is it
0: easy to lift the canopy? Oh,
1: yeah, it's just a matter of time. Uh, So, you know, as you get it taller and taller, you start lifting the lower branches off it and and eventually you will get it up more than tall enough. It can get to four metres or more. So it can be quite a large shrub slash almost getting onto small tree but it will have multiple stems so it'll always look shrubby Uh, but it's so elegant. I mean this form that anything that gets flattened layers of branches in it Mm. I think becomes a really good feature mm. plant in a garden.
2: I, I think I've seen it a lot in Tasmanian gardens. You, you would. It, it's something and that's very popular As in the, in the middle of the front garden, and they mm. just look fantastic. Yeah. They look you know, really superb, particularly when the flowers are there, and the flowers hold for a long time. Oh, yeah, long, yeah. They? And in
1: fact, they're yeah. very good for picking, except that you can't stand the stem up, because no, the flowers sit on a really odd, odd angle. So yeah. you've got to try and put the branches into a vase in the same way they're on the tree to make it look natural. Um, it's a very small genus. There's probably... Probably less than 10 species in the genus. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of evergreen species. Um, I've got, I think, four different yeah. stacky now um, and they're all got, they've all got that same sort of elegant form and mm-hmm. shape to them. Um, the evergreen ones do have the tendency to hide their flowers a bit more, unfortunately, but they're still worth it because their foliage is very handsome, nice, glossy, rich green foliage and there's one called Silicifolia which gets narrow willow-like leaves as the name would suggest and it's very elegant. Okay. Beautiful plant. But
2: the, the autumn colours are lovely. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really nice pink.
1: Yeah, it's sort of pinky, apricotty yeah, yeah. colours With a bit of lemon, and you know, it's it it is one of those autumn colours that, or one of those plants that gets autumn colours that has a lovely sort of mottley, various autumn colour look. It's not just bright red or bright yellow or bright whatever. Uh, It's this sort of tonal thing that I find particularly appealing. Um, And it will grow in comparatively shady spots. If you want good autumn colour, though, it does need some light to colour up reasonably well. Uh, It will grow out in full sun. Uh, It doesn't tend to burn in the summer, I find. So once Mm -hmm. it's well established, it seems to be reasonably hardy. Um, And it likes good drainage. And like a lot of Asian plants, just doesn't like to get deadly dry. Um, And... uh, You just need a little bit of space for it because of its flattened layered effect. Even if you are lifting the canopy up, you still need space for it to go out because if you've got to start chopping the ends off the branches, then you're losing the value of the plant, Mm. really. Mm. It it, it has to have those lovely flattened layers, otherwise there's no point in planting it. So Stachyurus, um, uh, and as I said, there's several species. Praecox is probably the most available of the species, uh, but if you see any stack euros for sale, they're all worth having. So uh, mm. Have a look at it. It's an interesting genus of plants. Uh, I think it's in its own family. I think it's in Stachyuraceae or something like that. Um, So it's an odd sort of plant. And this little one's only in a six-inch pot, but there's a a wee little flower spike forming on it there, so it'll have at least one flower spike on it. There's
2: two more up the top that you can't see. Oh, yes, there is two.
1: So, (laughs) yes, so even a little plant will get some flowers on it so you don't have to be a terribly patient gardener to get something back from it. Um, So, yes, and I, I remember seeing my first one, believe it or not, was growing in one of the garden beds around the buildings at Chadston Shopping Centre, way back when the old Williams Nursery was in the middle of Chadston. Okay. Okay. And it's the first one I ever saw was growing there, and Williams had planted it. It was just outside mm. their nursery area. And I remember buying my first one. I, w- I must have been all of 17 or 18, mm. uh, and taking it back to Mount Massett and very chuffed with my purchase. And it grew beautifully in our old garden up there for years. And I used to propagate it regularly and sell it and all that sort of stuff, but it's never been a commonly available yeah. shrub. Yep. so that and that for me is also a bonus. Mm. If you don't see it in everybody else's gardens, why not have one? Mm, absolutely indeed. Mm. yeah so there are all the plants that were up on the facebook page, so Fantastic. I hope people go in and have a look at it because Liz puts all the effort to, into putting she them up she certainly does yeah so yeah. I'd and like to think people use it as a resource
0: exactly and just a reminder you simply uh, log on to Facebook and uh, type in 3CR Gardening Show and up yeah. it all comes
1: and she seems to be doing a little bit of Instagramming as yes, well yes she's doing Instagram yeah. as well now yeah so, so I, I've um, noticed a few excellent. posts come up on my Instagram account yep. so uh, yep. which is great it is yeah. it's wonderful and we're so technological here at 3CR <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I wouldn't go that far <laughs> <Yeah>. Penny <laughs> might be more than I am that's yeah, for sure uh, uh,
1: yeah <laughs>
2: Can I, may I ask David a question? Yeah, about no, to to that? no, because one me. of the things that um, we quite often write about is attracting butterflies into the garden. Yeah. What native plants would you recommend for attracting butterflies?
4: Yeah, so there's a, uh, <coughs> there's two types when you're attracting butterflies. Obviously, the caterpillar food source and the the flowers for the butterflies. Um, a lot of the grasses are really important as a food source. So the kangaroo grass is a really important grass for food for caterpillars um so and the the wallaby grasses are also quite important mm-hmm. um and then some of the flowers that really attract the butterflies as we've got um things like the sticky everlasting so mm-hmm. okay. uh, um which attract has got good um is it specific butterflies um i don't know that much detail, okay. unfortunately. Sorry. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Putting you um, on the spot, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so a lot of our wildflowers. So we've also got a native um, Pelargonium Austral that attracts oh, yeah. a lot of butterflies. Yeah. Yeah. So a mixture of grasses and our small little herbaceous um, mm. wildflowers will bring attract the, a lot bring of the butterflies. butterflies. Yeah, yeah.
2: Fantastic. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Um, I should just quickly mention Stephen, and I have a feeling you're going to be involved in this.
3: Um,
1: <laughs> anything's possible Anything's <laughs> possible, yeah. I know
0: um, Now this is one for the diaries definitely Because it's not until the end of October But just a reminder to listeners That the Yarra Valley Plant Fair and Garden Expo Is coming oh, up mm-hmm. in October yeah. Now I think they had their first one last
1: year Yeah, it's a new event It's a anyway.
0: new event yeah. anyway yeah. in the Yarra Valley um, And uh, so it'll be running the weekend of 26th, 27th of October Of course I'll mention this um, mm. Much closer to time, this actually.
1: If, we, if we're putting dates in diaries well in advance, don't forget to the Mount Macedon uh, Garden Lovers Fair, which When's is the that first up? weekend in October.
0: Okay, so October's so, going to be a busy yeah, month, and
1: it's yeah. certainly worthwhile popping that into your diary because it's become quite a, an event for the calendar. Yeah, obviously, last year, yeah, that's it was right. You were terrific. talking about your yeah, um, tomato balls, yeah, Indeed. and um, yes, yeah, so they're going to have uh, it's going to be, I think, bigger than Ben Hur this year. I'm um, uh, our organizers talking about the possibility of nearly 40 stallholders oh, at the event this mm. year yeah. um, and, and also a, a range of speakers for the two days. I know I'll be probably shoved in there somewhere to do a talk but they're talking about, I won't name any names yet because nothing's been tied in but a few well-known people could well be, be, be speakers uh, in the speaker marquee mm-hmm. uh, and there'll be food and coffee cart and you know, all of the regular things and you can go for a walk through the garden at Bolabek. Um, open Garden Victoria will also have another garden open on that weekend so that you can go out after you've been to the fair and and visit another garden and that also hasn't been locked in yet because I'm still trying to track down the owners because they're overseas (laughs) so right, waiting to tie that in place but I know which garden I want uh, (laughs) for that particular weekend but uh, I can't sort of mention it yet because I haven't actually got permission Um, so there'll be lots of things going on that weekend as well so Mm. it's certainly worthwhile popping that in the diary Mm. as an upcoming event
0: and are you going to be having a spring or summer opening?
1: Um, well actually I'm having a early December opening, I think first weekend in December is going to be my opening for the garden scheme, and a mate of mine who owns another garden in Macedon, uh Four minutes by car away from mine. Looks like he's locked in to open on the same weekend. So there'll be oh, good. there'll be two gardens open yep. on that weekend. Yep. Um, and I know my mate Dale's talking about having wine tastings and all sorts of things in his garden. We'll probably stick with coffee and tea uh, and biscuits. Uh, and there'll be plant stalls and all that sort of thing, as often goes on with openings for the garden scheme. So yes. uh, yeah. So my idea is that I like to have my garden open over a period of time in every season, so that Return visitors can see the garden in a different way. Mm. Um, and uh, and new visitors m- will hopefully become return visitors in due course because they know each time they come in, the garden will look different. Yep. So, uh, Excellent. Yeah, so this will be our... Uh, our first opening for the scheme as sort of a summer opening. And, of course, the last, uh, first weekend in December is about the end of their season. They don't go any later than that. I would have been perfectly happy to have one even more into a full summer. Mm. Um, mm. But they do seem to have a bit of a recess over mm. that Christmas, New Year period, understandably. Uh, and the following one will probably be an autumn one, I think. Okay. Uh, so we're, we're going to try and cover all the seasons yep. over the next yep. year or two. So.
0: I must say... Um, I'm really disappointed they've closed for so long over this winter yeah. period.
1: Well, I am actually going to force them into opening my garden during the winter at some point or another. Mm. Um, uh I mean, in a sense, there's no real reason why we shouldn't have some winter gardens open because I think we should. They only have to have it up on the website and all that sort of thing. It's not like there's a lot of extra work involved. So, if you're listening, Garden Scheme, you will be opening my garden at some point in June or July. <laughs> that's that's a promise. Yeah. So, uh, no,
0: I think it's great because everyone's been forced into hibernation yeah. and it's
1: yeah and you can get some gorgeous weather in the winter i mean you can get some dreadful weather for an opening but you can still get gorgeous weather um and people are sort of i don't know stir crazy wanting to get out and do stuff yeah.
2: so and it's also important to see the bones of a garden oh, Of course and, exactly. and that's what you can do in winter and you can work out because mm. so many things are, are dormant in some form or other even if they're still in full leaf yeah but it gives yeah. you an idea of you know, what really makes up the garden, that exactly. sometimes you can't see when you can't say because everything's yeah. got of Well, I always there, find so. at
1: different openings when I've had... Well, I have had a winter opening for the old scheme when it was the Open Gardens Australia, um, and it's amazing the plants that have always been there Mm. But suddenly people you ask should. about them, yeah. you know, because they yeah. really start to stand out a bit in yeah. one form or another. True. And so people start to engage with plants that they probably wouldn't see in my garden even though they're there as a rule. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think opening every, at any time of the year is a great idea. I feel really sad for people who only open their garden on the second week in November when the roses are at their peak because what on earth do they look at for the rest of the year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it just strikes me slightly odd that you could only open your garden at that sort of high spring period. Yes. Mm. So there's a there's a thought, there's
0: and you can't you can't ever guarantee the uh, the weather anyway. No,
1: you could have dreadful weather at any time of, of the course, year. Of course, exactly. Uh, so, so it's it's a bit of a, a lucky dip. No, it isn't an excuse. You're right. All
0: right. So we've had a query. How do you keep rats out of the worm farm? Um, peppermint. Peppermint. Peppermint.
2: So I use peppermint, polygonium just because I've got a lot more of it, and in, and in winter particularly the you know the leaves of your yeah. peppermints have died back. Um, but yeah, peppermint. They don't. Rats and mice don't like peppermint. So, I like my chook food. I, yeah. <laughs> um, what you can actually do is, if you take the take the worms out, you can line the inside of the worm farm with the peppermint polygonium leaves, and they, right. and the worms will eat everything else. They will eventually. They'll eat the peppermint leaves, but because they're sort of hairy and they're um, yeah, it works, it works really well oh, there you go. and the, yeah. other, the other thing you can do is if you've got one of those above ground worm farms that is on legs, you can actually sit each leg in water which makes it much harder for the rats yeah. yes. yes, to actually yep. get to the worm farm
0: yep. Is there anything that uh, people are putting into their worm farms that are particularly attractive for the look, uh, rats?
2: Uh, yeah, look, I, my worm farm they can't get into because I make sure that there's something on the top that they can't Mm. lift the lid off and, and all of that but um Look, really, they will feed on all sorts of things. Yeah, and, almost and any scraps that you yeah, put in there, they yeah. like. And then and it's, you know, some of them are the native rats getting in there as well, and they'll feed on the veggies. So, mm. you know, they're, after a really dry summer, they're looking for food yep. at the moment. Yep. So, yeah, it is it is tricky. And the best way of doing it is to have it as well sealed from them as possible. Yeah, but the exclude mm. them. Yeah, is if you can't do yes. that, yes. For put, sure. put peppermint in there.
0: Okay, mm. excellent. All right. David, can you remind listeners um, some of the details of, like, your address, where you yeah. are, your opening hours, etc. Certainly.
4: So, yeah, so um, Billy Nursery is at 525 Williamstown Road, Port Melbourne. Uh, we're open to the public Friday and Saturday, 10 to 4. Our number is 96452477, And we actually have a, a workshop on next Saturday at, I think it's around 11 o'clock, um, about making native plant cockadamas for indoors. Oh, okay. So um, we have a website, which is um, westgatebiodiversity.org.au, and all the details will be on there. Fantastic.
0: That's brilliant. Yeah, excellent. And you're always, I would imagine, looking for
4: more volunteers. Definitely. So we have volunteers at the nursery Tuesday to Friday, 10 to 4, and at the park Monday to Wednesday, 8.30 to 3 o'clock.
0: Okay, so can they just rock up?
4: Yeah, um, give us a call or check on our website. We have a a volunteer form on our website, which is westgatebiodiversity.org.au. And if you fill that out, I'll get in touch with you and fill out all the details there.
0: And just give the phone number again. Uh,
4: 9645 2477.
0: 2477. Fantastic. Excellent. I think you're doing such an amazing job. Thank um, you. Yeah. yeah. and it's so needed. It really is.
4: Yeah, um, I think Melbourne's really privileged. I'm originally from Brisbane. Um, we have about eight community plant nurseries specialising in the local native plants. Mm. And it's an amazing network to get down and make sure you get and visit them and support them as much as you can. mm
1: Mm. Can I put in a plea for all people who are growing plants to sell Um, I think um, gardeners need to support growers um, and it's all very convenient to go to one of the big barns or one of the big garden centres to buy your plants but you'll always find a limited range in those places Uh, you won't always find staff that have the knowledge that you might need to understand what you're buying Uh, so if you can support people who are actually growers doing these plants whether it be the native plant growers or whether it be people growing exotic plants support those people and keep them in business because if you don't you won't have the diversity of plant material that you would like And so, you know, it's really important that you do do these things. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, it it is me pleading for my own existence, I guess, in some ways. Um, But I think it it behoves gardeners as a group to be encouraged to get out there and and support the growers so that they will, in fact, have these things into the future. Definitely. really important. And the same
2: applies to local bookshops. Yes, the same (laughs) does apply to local (laughs) bookshops. You need to support your local bookshop. Yeah, Yeah. Yes, don't buy everything online. Otherwise, we won't Mm. have them. No. Mm.
0: That's right. Um, Ron in Templestowe Ron I did, uh, I did mention this earlier but obviously you weren't listening earlier to the program so I will repeat it um, we were talking last week uh, about gravilla peaches and cream uh, now I did mention it, it's a hybrid uh, the parents are Gravilia banksii and Gravilia bipinnata. It really is a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, but it is the same parentage as Superb and Robin Gordon, which you've mentioned up there in your message. Mm. So uh, yeah, I
1: think Robin Gordon was one of the first of that hybrid group it that was. came out, uh, it was. and it caused quite a, a stir amongst plant lovers because it was just such a showy thing. Oh yes, um, and sort of set a new benchmark almost yeah. for well, Gravilia breeding. Yeah. did,
0: and Grevillea Superb is also a lovely one yeah. as well, but peaches and cream, um, as the name suggests, you've got uh, the cream and uh, an yeah, apricotty sort of
1: colour. colour. Yeah, lovely thing. It and, is
0: a
3: very lovely And I like
1: leaf. the foliage of that group of hybrids too, the leaves are pretty because they they're, they're, are. they've got this really interesting intricate sort of form to them, and so even when they're not in flower, which is not a particularly long period of the year, um, they're still a good shrub. Mm. No, I agree with that. Well worthwhile except for those who suffer from skin complaints. Yes, (laughs) yeah. Some of them, some people are allergic to it, so you just need to be aware that that group of grevilleas can cause some people some issues. Yeah,
2: but and the other thing that we have to remember about these fabulous native plants is that they're not not only have beautiful flowers, but they're really good for the birds and they're really Mm. good for the native. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're really important on that level as well. Mm,
0: mm. Just. Briefly, um, because we've still got a couple of minutes, uh, what are you currently researching at the moment? Anything exciting? Uh, no. I, I just, <laughs> I'm
2: getting to the end of this whole basket thing, and then I'm, I'm, and that's yeah, preoccupied. I'm working, on, working yeah. on the next issue of Organic Gardener. Fair enough. We're now doing um, six issues a year instead of um, – sorry, eight issues a year instead of seven. Um, so suddenly it comes around much more quickly. Yes, I'm is. sure. So every six weeks. And, um yeah, so I'm, I, um, the next issue that's coming out, I've got a, an article on herbal hedges, which mm-hmm. I really enjoyed researching that. And it's yeah, interesting, you know, if you're looking at hedges of different heights, the um, how many different herbs that you can use, um, which means you can harvest them at the same time as, as um, you know, forming Yeah, having hedges. a practical barrier. Yeah, mm. indeed. Yeah, sorry. Yeah.
0: We're also coming up to winter solstice. Should people be doing anything with their garlic? Uh, okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, well um, watching it grow, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, the, the, the main thing is that it, it should be in the ground. Mm. Yes. Um, the second thing is that bulbs don't start to swell. They swell for two reasons. One is increased temperature and the other is lengthening days. So once your days start lengthening again, that's a trigger to both onions and, and garlic. To bulb um, but you need the temperature as well so once you're starting to get some reasonable consistently warm days your bulbs will be starting to swell and that's when you need to start feeding them so Mm. you don't overfeed the nitrogen uh, at ever but you don't give them too much nitrogen until they start swelling so in Victoria you're looking at sort of probably around in July, beginning of August, okay. you need, to, you need yep. to start thinking. But that depends a bit on when you planted them. Mm. So yes, right. And, of course, so we
1: need to keep our garlic weeded. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yes, you need,
2: to, you need to mulch, but you also you really don't want to over mulch if mm. we get a lot of rain because garlic doesn't like consistently wet yeah. soil. Mm. Yeah, I tend to just on. weed
1: around mine. I've never bothered mulching, but you do have to keep on top of the weeds. And my biggest weed this year in my garlic is going to be, um, unfortunately, the mulch. Miners' lettuce is coming up um, all through the garlic but bed. It's
2: wonderful, just give it freely to your customers. Don't yeah, you know, get the, bags of miners' lettuce. The,
1: the problem is, though, I don't want it like. to impinge on the garlic.
2: Oh, okay, we'll weed yeah. it
1: out. I'm going to have to. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of it growing in other parts of the veggie yeah. garden because it comes up everywhere, but I was just walking past the garlic yesterday and I thought, oh, look at all that miners' lettuce coming up through there. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I'm going to have to go through and scratch it all out, I think, in that bed. We're going to have more miners' lettuce than we'll ever eat. That's
2: wonderful yes. stuff.
1: Yeah, right. uh, so it doesn't perturb me about discarding it out of the garlic bed, I have to say. Yeah. But um, I do feel the need to get in there and keep the garlic nice and clean.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair and enough. Someone's asked for my website, for your website? which is pennywoodwood.com.au. Nice and
1: is, simple. Yeah, yeah, very
2: straightforward. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so that, uh, it's probably people wanting to have a look at the books mm-hmm. that I was talking about
0: earlier. So. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've just got one quick query coming up. I'm just waiting for it to come through. What's the best method... For um, for labelling uh, plants. There you go. You've had to experiment with uh, this
1: a lot. Th- there's no best method, and I'm quite convinced that there is a label fairy out there that steals labels anyway. They have a tendency to disappear. <laughs> yes. But I would, I have yet to find an indelible pen that works. Yep. They just asking, all fade. They're
2: asking about black pencil.
1: Yeah, there's a black pencil a made by Staedtler uh, called a plaster mark, I think it's called, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's really good. Uh, it lasts and lasts and lasts. You can use a China graph pencil, but the trouble with them is they're wax leads and they melt if you leave them sitting in the sun, uh, and they also write rather large. So if you need to get a lot of information on a label, they are actually a bit too coarse. Yep. Um, but, yeah, Staedtler make a really good one, and I, I sell them up at work. I actually buy boxes of them and sell them, and sell them on to customers Mm. because I've got labels that are 10 years old and still quite legible Mm. uh, using that marking pencil. So there you go.
0: Okay, we have run out of time for yet another week. Um, do stay tuned for uh, the next show coming up, which is Alternative News, and it's their Radiothon show, so do stay tuned for Alternative News. A big thank you to the team and to Susie and Emma for handling all the phones this morning. Until uh, next Sunday, which is our big gardening Radiothon, bye for now.